1: where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming DJ Chang. DJ is a memoirist, writer, and social purpose entrepreneur. She received a Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology from Columbia University and earned a master's degree in urban planning and public administration from NYU. DJ now resides in the San Francisco Bay Area with her spouse, CR, and dogs. DJ was raised in a white upper middle class suburb of New York City, where as a child she witnessed her caregiver die suddenly and as a young adult grappled with issues of sexuality, class, and ethnicity. Throughout her life, DJ searched for the meaning of identity, love, life, and death, and she explores these big questions and the events that shaped her life in her debut best-selling memoir, First Mistake. Welcome, DJ. Thanks for having me, Cheryl. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. I want to start kind of, uh, kind of at the beginning of the story, I guess. I'm always interested in kind of lifelong impact from losses, and in your case, your book is really uh, formulated around an early loss. I wonder if you could just share with the listeners a bit about your relationship with Akung. Ah yeah, Akung was um,
2: the servant to my grandmother and grandfather uh, back in China and um, came with my father's family to America when when my father was just uh, two years old. <clears throat> and he actually, um, when he retired from um, working uh, for another family, he actually came to live with my family, my, my parents and my brother and I, um, when I was uh, uh, basically just a baby, and um, and he he died actually at um, when I was nine years old uh, one night when he was babysitting for us for my brother and I, um, and it uh, it had an impact in my life in in ways that I didn't even uh, fully understand until recently, um, but uh, you know as the book describes we we've had conversations since since he passed on, <clears throat> um, and. You know, we didn't even speak when he was alive because uh, he only spoke Chinese and I only spoke English. So, um, so it was when uh, after he passed on, it was uh, I was able to kind of speak to him through through our spiritual connection.
1: Did you miss sharing a common language when he was alive? Uh, I, you know, I did get the impression from your book that you and he had a strong connection. Mm-hmm regardless of the lack of language in common but did did you wish you could could um converse with him when you were a kid um
2: not really because I always felt like I understood what he um what he was saying to me I mean he would speak to me in Chinese and I would pretty much get the get the message by his through his eyes um he you know he was actually sort of my protector my my mother was a um, I I wouldn't call her a tiger mom, but she was a you know very um, well educated, strict uh, Chinese uh, parent, and and he was the one that I would um, take refuge in uh, when she would criticize me or she would uh, find me exasperating. I would I would go to him, and mm-hmm. and he always comforted me.
1: And and it's interesting too because um, I think that would be I don't know if that's a common. Experience in China, but I would call it probably uncommon in the in the U.S. for uh, a former um, employee to really become a member of the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you say that was something that seemed unusual to you, or kind of usual? Because um, it was your experience. Yeah. No,
2: I mean, I would think it's very unusual. I mean, in, in China, he was actually um, essentially an, um, I mean, almost an indentured servant. He he grew up in, um, I believe, an orphanage. And, um, and he became my grandmother's servant uh, at a very young age um, and took care of her and lived with her family. Uh, so that he he really almost had no family of his own, um, and even though he was married uh, or he did get married through a arranged marriage, um, his family, his child, and his wife uh, stayed in China when he came to America, and he he chose to stay with us, um, and really uh, was was more part of my my father's family than than I think his own. Uh, his own family that he that he had back in China.
1: Would you Would you read the the little section of your book about uh, the loss the loss of him because it, it seems timely right now? Okay, great. Um, so that's this is from the first chapter. Um, a gung died
2: of a heart attack right under my hands. It was a summer evening about a month before my ninth birthday. At the age of 86 and retired from his lifelong career as a domestic servant, Agung lived with us and occasionally babysat when my parents went out. He had just cleaned off the dinner table, and my brother Martin and I were settled in front of the TV to watch the movie of the week on the wonderful world of Disney. Pollyanna was playing that night. Agung positioned himself on a swiveling black vinyl bar stool next to the TV in order to keep his eye on Martin and me. My first reaction when I saw Gung fall to the floor was to laugh. Um, and then it, it turned out that he actually had a heart attack and had passed away. Um, and then a little bit later in the chapter, I write, There were so many questions I had wanted to ask my father about a Gung's death, but I didn't know how to talk to him about those things. I asked him what was going to happen to a gung now, and he told me about the funeral and the memorial service. I didn't know how to explain that I wasn't interested in what happened to his body. I wanted to know what happened to him. Was he just gone now? I wanted to ask about why people die. It seemed unfair to me like God was playing some kind of cruel joke, giving us life just to take it away. They seemed to be religious questions, but my parents didn't practice any religion, and I had only vague notions about God and faith.
1: That's interesting, isn't it? That that um, even at a young age, you had those questions and there was no, they were not inspired by particularly anything around you. But I wonder if looking back, you feel they might have been inspired a bit by Okung. Um, I think definitely he, I mean, he was already um,
2: elderly as uh, he was raising us or as, as he took care of us um, and he became religious in his old age. He, he became a very uh, devout Buddhist um, and he would actually leave us every weekend to, to take a, tra- a bus into New York City and go actually live with the monks in a Buddhist temple um, every weekend and then return to us on Monday. Um, and so I think he had, as he was um, approaching his own death, I think he started to have questions about faith and and about morality. And he he actually had a little shrine in his room where he would uh, pray to uh, to the Buddha every every day. And I used to sneak into his uh, room and and he had a little um, a little almost like an offering plate where he would put chocolate candies in and sometimes I would sneak into his room and, and steal the candies. And I always wondered if he, (laughs) if he thought that, um, didn't realize that I was stealing them or if he actually thought maybe Buddha was accepting some of his gift. Um, but, uh, I, I think it, it made me think about, um, you know, the questions about why are we here? What is, what is the meaning of life and death? Um, and I think his, his curiosity about about faith uh, kind of rubbed off on me a little bit and made me have those questions. Even though my parents really had, had no interest in them, um, it kind of spurred an interest, I think, in me. Did that change for your parents as they aged or not? Um, not really there was a, a time um, actually when I decided to join uh, the church at the age of 16 my mom actually uh, came with me and and we were both baptized together um, but but that it didn't really stick with her um, I think she she you know I think she has is probably would characterize herself as an agnostic mm-hmm. Um but but faith was something that um, somehow only seemed to be part of my life and my family, and it and it was very natural to me. It it was just something um, that wasn't really taught to me, but it just seemed to be something that was inherent in my in me.
1: Well, I think that's captured in your book because your progression through those questions did seem quite natural and just. Um, Organic, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing and another you were exposed to. Um, helped to explore the questions, yeah? Yeah, I think so.
2: I mean, I, I, um, I and it seems strange now, but I, I went to a private school um, all gro- all throughout my life, um, and in the earliest in, in our grade school years, uh, we would start Morning assembly with uh, the Lord's Prayer, actually, which which actually seems strange now because it wasn't a Christian school. Mm-hmm. Um, but the prayer itself uh, was always very meaningful to me, and so that I think um, made me, you know, want to read the Bible and want to, you know, actually study all religions. In college, I kind of minored in religion and and religions of all all different faiths, um, and. I found that they they all have um, similar approaches. I think to to some of the big questions that I've had in my life about mm-hmm. um,
1: about why we're here and how we make meaning of our lives. I love the expression "a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground." It just came to mind as you said that <laughs> mm-hmm. that that all of the practices kind of lead to the a similar experiential place. Mm-hmm. But it's but it's interesting in your life that. Simultaneous to to that exploring religions in that way, you were also exploring your own sexuality and and um, who you were as an adult person. Mm-hmm. How did those two uh, intersect for you? Because that can be, I know you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and I know too, a uh, uh, conflict. My dad was a minister, so I'm I'm on the yeah. other end of that conflict in a way, but. Uh-huh. Um, how did they? How did you put them together at that point in your life? Um, well, like I said, I joined a
2: church when I was sixteen. It was a a small Presbyterian church in um, Orange, New Jersey, and I think I, they didn't have they there. There weren't many. I never heard any sermons about um, about homosexuality, and so I, that wasn't really a. Um, Something that turned me off of religion, but actually I did leave my church uh, after a, only a couple years. Um, more because one day the the minister gave a sermon about about heaven, and about how how. Um, Buddhists couldn't go to heaven, and and I think that was what turned me off about this particular Presbyterian church uh, more than any talk about uh, homosexuality, but I was actually lucky enough to, to find, while I was in college, um, the Riverside Church, uh, which is, uh, you know, famous uh, kind of Um, non-denominational or uh, actually UCC and Baptist affiliated church in New York City, right um, near the, the near Harlem in uh, New York City, right by my college uh, at Columbia University. Um, And that was just the most opening and welcoming um, congregation. They had, um, they had recently had their, um, uh, signed the, um, affirmation of openness and inclusion. Um, and the senior minister there, um, William Sloan Coffin, uh, who became a hero to me, um, actually was one of the first, uh, I think, uh, Christian ministers to really, um, often give sermons about homosexuality and, and, um, equated the, the civil rights movement for, uh, LGBT folks as, um, um, equivalent to uh, the civil rights uh, movement for for
1: African Americans. Um, you no, know, I, I know that church quite well because my parents uh, were were um, close to people, including mm. including him in that mm. church. Mm. My parents were American Baptists, uh-huh. and they worked for the church body, for the governing body of that church, and so of course they <laughs> they interacted with a lot of different churches, but Riverside was one of their very favorites. So Mm. (laughs) I heard about Riverside over the years for sure. Yeah. I mean, I was lucky
2: enough that, um, I think maybe the first, uh, the first time I ever went there, uh, they, they had a big, um, celebration about how they, for the first time, uh, Riverside was going to be marching in the, um, the gay pride parade that year Um, and it just made me feel like okay this is the right place for me
1: that's such a lucky uh, a a lucky break in a way because I know so 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 many people who have been what I would call religiously traumatized around sexuality so um, that was a wonderful thing to happen to get that message so young yeah, no, I think it makes a huge, huge difference. And I, I just love
2: um, actually having the opportunity to see um, Pete Buttigieg run for president now and, and to have, see him be able to have that message that, um, you know, talks about his own faith and, um, and how, how it does not conflict with his, uh, his identity as a,
1: a gay man. And of course, a lot of people believe that way, but you don't. I don't know if they don't capture the media or, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what. But uh, I'm certainly my parents fought for uh, LGBTQ rights, you know, ever since I came out, basically, mm-hmm. and um, had a large community of people that agreed with them and their church. Once they moved to the West Coast, came out as welcoming and affirming. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's just a lot of 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 Christian people who don't see any kind of conflict. Yeah, but we don't hear as much.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think um, okay. the the religious right has has um, taken over the conversation uh, far too often, and I think only recently have um, some of the more progressive Christians' um, voices actually. Been been heard um, and been covered
1: by the media, so a little more, yeah. Well, it's almost time for a break, and when we get back, of course, this is, in a way, background. What I would I would call uh your main story, your love story, mm-hmm. um, I know that's not the only thing the book is about, but it seems so central, mm-hmm. um, your relationship with your wife and all that happened uh, for you, for the two of you. Um, so let's talk about that when we get back from the break. Okay, sounds good. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And you can also find a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them. And to find uh, uh, DJ's book, you can just go to Amazon and type in First Mistake. Be back soon.
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you stop to think seriously about hypnosis, hypnosis can set you on your way to better health, can free you from anxiety, phobias, and so much more. Join host Inez Simpson for hypnosis everywhere. Inez Simpson and the Simpson Protocol. This show is for anyone from the experienced hypnotist practitioner to the merely curious. Inez Simpson offers tools and insights from the whole world of hypnosis with guests and open discussions. Hypnosis Everywhere, The Simpson Protocol, airs live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern time and 3 p.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel.
3: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones,
1: This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with DJ Chang about her memoir, First Mistake, Facing Death, Finding Life. And uh, last last segment, uh, DJ, we we um, kind of explained, I guess, the beginning of your journey with Facing Death, Finding Life. Mm-hmm. But I really wanted this segment to focus on your relationship with your, your wife, um, your meeting, um, kind of your beginning, and uh, the losses that you encountered—not death losses, but other types—that, as the theme of this show is about, led to things that are pretty extraordinary. I think so. Can you share that? Um, yeah. So, so my wife and
2: I met uh, when I was uh, 20 years old. Uh, 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 junior in college, and it was she was really my first love, um, and we had a um, exciting but tumultuous uh, six week relationship, um, and at the um, end of that six week period, um, she actually had a um, a bad experience. She was a HIV drug user, which um, I wasn't fully aware of until. Um, quite far into our six-week relationship. Um, and she ended up um, having a massive stroke and um, becoming infected with, a, with um, HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. Um, and actually in uh, the early time, we, so talking about losses, um, you know, there was the loss of, of our um, physical relationship because her parents actually uh, moved her back to Oklahoma City um, after she uh, recovered enough from the stroke. Um, and uh, shortly after that, she actually learned from her physician that, um, that she had a opportunistic infection, a, a parasite that uh, they believed
1: she would not survive from. So... You, uh, for some period of time, operated on the assumption that she would die quickly. And of course, I lived through that time in San Francisco when a, a lot of people were dying of AIDS. And so there was kind of an expectation that was going to be what happened, too. Yeah, definitely.
2: Uh, um, 1986,
1: um, I mean, that
2: was a very, you know, fairly early on in the. Um, in the epidemic. And, um, at that time it was literally a death sentence for, for almost everybody who, who, uh, got it. And, um, and they actually, you know, one of the things that was so, uh, infuriating about it for her was that, um, you know, she had had a a stroke and, and, um, was in a rehab facility. And once they learned that she had HIV, um, they, essentially wrote her off and said, there's no point in you getting any physical therapy. Um, mm-hmm. And they ended up moving her to a, um, at the time was a
1: AIDS hospice. Do you think that made a difference in terms of uh, her healing? I know she has some ongoing, uh, you know, permanent um, disabilities from that stroke. Do you imagine that would have been any different if they had, uh, offered her um more physical therapy or
2: yeah. Not? I, no i i do think they um she might have uh gained more uh physical ability back if if they hadn't written her off um
1: i mean I and remember so then that's a that's a really long lasting effect of a a biased uh-huh. um action yeah. yeah
2: yeah no definitely um she really um, she, she could have benefited from a lot more physical therapy, but they they bas- basically told her, well, you have AIDS and you're going to die, so um, there's really no point.
1: And then um, I imagine she must have been uh, a little unusual in an AIDS hospice at that time, because mm-hmm. it would have been probably primarily gay men? Gay men, or- yeah. No, definitely how was uh, that for both of you yes yeah, so she um
2: she went there and she was the only woman there um she also attended um, at the you know the aid support group meetings in Oklahoma City, uh, which were almost all gay men as well and for the four years that she uh, was in um, living in the hospice or living in the that facility um it pretty much was all, all gay men and and um, and they all, I mean, she, she once told me that she knew about a hundred people from those aid support group
1: meetings and, and she was the only one to survive. That's such a legacy, isn't it? Um, to to have that huge a load of, of loss, but then survive. I know a lot of men in the city, face that now they lived when everyone around them died Mm -hmm. and um some people of course reformed community and went forward but some are some men in san francisco i've i've um read about and heard about are pretty isolated because they just never wanted to open themselves up again Mm -hmm. i guess (laughs) you know uh for how was that for the two of you I, I think there's probably a lot of, um, I mean, for her, a lot of survivor's
2: guilt, you know, that was a, a legacy. And, and, um, and part of the reason that I think I wanted to write the book is that um, I, f- I almost felt like there was a, a responsibility uh, for her, the fact that she she is one of the few people who survived, um, and to really tell that story, because it is one that I think has been um, often forgotten. Uh, of surviving uh, when of,
1: when so many didn't.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. and just the fact that there was a time when when an AIDS diagnosis uh, or or even being affected with HIV um, was a death sentence, and and I think people forget now, so many years later, what what that was like when there were so many losses um, of you know especially young people at the you know the height of their lives and and the the peak of their creativity and um, and really just just starting to live who who
1: didn't get that chance which which is both I can imagine the survivor's goat, but it's also sort of I've heard so many times I'm kind of living for everyone <laughs> too yeah. that isn't, that's the other aspect of it there's kind of your life is very precious isn't mm-hmm. it yeah no I think that's true but then for you, I mean, I was resonating with you somewhat having um, thrown all in with someone who was ill. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very yeah. close to, to my first wife before she was diagnosed, but um, you know, we really committed during that period, mm-hmm. expecting her to die very quickly. She was yeah. given six months to a year. She lived eight and a half, but wow. <laughs> nonetheless, um, for you... Wh- what was? What do you think uh, enabled you to say yes to that uh, at a time when AIDS was still a bit scary, uh, for one thing, but also just to connect so deeply with someone who was supposed to die?
2: Yeah, I I think for me, um, when when I met her, there was there was something. Um, immediate I mean she was my first love but um there was also just something where it was like we we recognized each other there, there was something um we recognized something in ourselves and each other um and it just somehow in my mind it felt like we were meant to be together uh, we were meant to have uh something together and um and as I said, she, you know, she had these struggles with, um, with, uh, IV drug use. Uh, she was, a, an incest survivor. Um, and so she had, had struggles in her life. And so she had been pretty much the whole time we were together, she had been trying to push me away. Um, but, you know, maybe it's my own stubbornness or, um, romanticism, but I, I just felt like, I knew that we were meant to be together and I, we were meant to have uh, a life together. Um, and I didn't know how long that life would be. Um, and I, I didn't know whether or not she would, would die. I mean, I, I think partly in my, uh, you know, my logical mind told me that she wouldn't survive, but my, my heart and my, and I think my faith had all, for some reason, always told me that, that, uh, that she wouldn't, she wouldn't uh, succumb to the illness and that we would have a life together.
1: Um. Amazing thing to know, huh?
3: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Or to sense. Um, You know, I I couldn't help but put put together this situation in which, by total surprise, uh, you lost someone and maybe even felt some amount, I got the impression, some amount of guilt, even though, it had nothing to do with you when mm-hmm. a go ride. yeah um, and then you had such a fierce um, need almost to help your wife, yeah, and I couldn't help but connect those two. Are they connected in your mind? Yeah, and I think only um,
2: only really near near the end of um, uh, where the where the book ends, I actually had some recognition. Um, that, that the experience that I had, uh, losing a gun and, and feeling that, um, you know, my, my nine-year-old child self that, um, you know, didn't have the ability to understand that it wasn't something that I had control over. But I, I think something in me, um, gave me that fierce, uh, uh instinct or fight to want to to try to relive that experience and and try to save somebody um and i think you know even though i didn't recognize it at the time i think that there was something to that um where i had this uh sense that i wanted to try to save the people around me because i i hadn't been able to save
1: him uh, Mm. at at nine years old um just just as a as a um manifestation of that I wondered if you'd share the part of your book about the lengths you went to in a way Mm -hmm. uh one of the one of the more extreme things that you did to to try to bring some healing or more cure Mm because I do differentiate the two you know um to your wife
2: um yeah so this uh is from chapter 10 in the book um where I had uh, actually met a uh, professor at Columbia who, who told me about a faith healer in Brazil named John of God, um, who claimed to be able to do faith healing um, surgeries at a distance. Um, so the day before the date of Caroline's scheduled faith healing surgery, I called her at the winds to tell her about it. It occurred to me that what I was trying to do went even beyond the normal, as if there is anything normal about faith healing, at a distance faith healing therapy. The person doing the preparation and liquid therapy surgery would ordinarily be the patient to be healed, but I was asking for an at a distance faith healing once removed. I was the one doing the praying, meditating, and attending of evangelical meetings, but she was the one who needed to be healed. Could that still work? I read Caroline the instructions for the day of treatment and told her not to eat meat or smoke cigarettes, both things she'd likely still do. Light a prayer candle by her bedside, probably against house regulations. Wear white, have a glass of water by her bed to drink around midnight, say a prayer, and go to bed early. I hope that she might be able to follow some of the instructions. I made sure I followed them all.
1: It, it's it's interesting too because uh y- you know what i get out of that was she w- she wasn't totally on board that <laughs> um, <laughs> she might do a few things just to humor you <laughs> but she wasn't all the way uh a believer yes yeah i mean she
2: uh, at one point she said well you know thanks for doing that i have i have faith in your faith um but, uh, you know, she was also, and in in- I know you believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, she was in a, a hospice, uh, that had lots of rules and regulations. Um, you know, she was in a, uh, you know, she had smoked since she was probably around 10 years old. And so, uh, the chances that she wouldn't smoke that day was, were probably pretty slim. Um, and, and certainly lighting a candle at night uh, in, in their bedroom was not uh, going to be allowed. <laughs> so.
1: so some of it was just uh, things she would actually be prohibited from and mm-hmm. others would be things that would just be too hard. Yeah. yeah. But but you still maintained some faith that it could be helpful. Yeah, I did. Um, and
2: actually, you know, in that chapter, you know, I call her right after the the faith healing surgery took place and she, you know, to try, try to see if anything had changed. And, you know, she said, well, you know, I'm still, I'm still paralyzed and I don't think, it, you know, anything has changed. Um, but then I actually, you know, do a, a ritual later um, right before, um, right before Valentine's day, which was uh, this, uh, actually a Wiccan ceremony with some of my friends at, at uh, college and uh, it was supposed to be a menstruation ritual, and and I, um, you know, went through this menstruation ritual, and I called her the next day on Valentine's Day, and that's when um, she actually told me that the the um, they tested her again for that uh, that parasite, and and she no longer had it, and even though she had not had a her period for um, since her stroke in uh, in April of of uh, the year before she actually got her period that morning. So, so that, so something certainly must have added
1: fuel to your fire Mm -hmm. (laughs) for sure.
2: So Um, I actually, um, you know, and it was something that, uh, I really believed that, that a miracle took place. Um, and it actually, it, it led me, um, I, you know, I graduated later that year and I actually started, um, Exploring the ministry at that time, because I felt like, um, you know, I needed to see, I needed to give thanks for for that, uh,
1: for that healing that took place. And you thought at that time that the way to best give thanks would be to enter the ministry, Possibly, actually, um, you know, I met with one of the ministers at
2: Riverside, and and she convinced me to, you know, n- not to just enroll in seminary school, but to actually go work for for a church for a year, and see and see how it worked. And, um, you know, and it was funny because I I went to this Ivy League school, and I ended up taking a a job with the United Church of Christ, where I made fifty dollars a week. Um, plus room and board and my father would joke saying that it would take me the rest of my life to, to pay back you know to earn enough <laughs> to pay for the college tuition yeah. um but it actually led me to um working with the homeless uh and then when I left that job I I returned to New York City and ended up working for the mayor's office on homelessness um in New York City for the next six years
1: you know one thing I've uh I've thought about over the years uh, in terms of my dad being, uh, you know... A minister and, and all of that, I used to feel like I had chosen such a different direction. And then at some point I realized, no, there was actually ministry in the things that I do. Mm-hmm. It just was in a, a completely different way. And I, I had that feeling reading your book that that maybe you didn't go into the ministry, but you have ministered in various uh, locations and various lo- work locations in your lifetime would you agree yeah I think so it, it's it's actually
2: funny that you say that because um uh I I sent a copy of uh, my book to the the widow of William Sloan Coffin um and she she wrote me back uh because in in my book I talked about how I uh, during that year that I took uh working for the church um Dr. Coffin retired from Riverside Church, and it made me feel like, well, he had given up on ministry, and, and what his um, his widow wrote to me was that he never felt like he gave up on the ministry. He just ended up uh, ministering in, in a different way. Just left the
1: church. Yeah. It's time for our second break, and, and after the break, uh, you know, I feel that these experiences in your life have definitely led you... Uh, affected how you've made choices in your life and I'd like to spend some time in the third segment talking about that okay sounds great Uh, listeners you can go to weatheringgrief.com my website or the good grief host page to look for everything I mentioned before and you can find the book first mistake and dj chang at amazon back after the break Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
3: Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with DJ Chang talking about her book, First Mistake, uh, Facing Death, Finding Life. And... Uh, I mentioned before the break, DJ, that I just want to talk about all the different things you've done in your life and how they kind of evolved out of these. Uh, from my view, out of these experiences, it seemed to me that even things you did that didn't directly relate that. Of course, the ministry things Mm -hmm. did directly relate, and working with homelessness certainly. Um, But everything hasn't directly related, unless I. uh, And yet, I had the sense that there is a connection between these experiences and what you've ended up doing. Uh, Could you could you talk some about that? If is that the way you see it, or? yeah, I think. Um, I mean, what's interesting is that
2: I started uh, working with the homeless uh, during that period of time when uh, my wife was uh, in the in the hospice in Oklahoma City, um, and I was finding a way to to kind of give back or give my thanks to uh, to my God for uh, for the incredible gift of her life, um, and working with the homeless, I think, uh, ended up being a a way for me to give back. Um, but then once, uh, she actually, uh, you know, she actually outlived everybody who had been in that, um, in that hospice, uh, and I convinced her to come live with me in New York city. Um, it, it became clear that I was I was uh, working on behalf of of um, a lot of strangers and and then we had a um, a relationship that was um, you know where she was my primary uh, partner um, and sometimes I think she felt and and I probably would have to admit that there were times when I was uh, spending more time. Um, you know, caring about uh, other people and not spending as much time caring about her, um, and so I en- ended up actually leaving um, my job, working for a not-for-profit uh, company that uh, that advocated on behalf of the homeless, and I was focusing on on her and her health because she um, she'd actually at that point um, gotten a, a blood tests that showed that her um, that her immune system was almost non-existent. It had dropped below 100 T-cells, um, and she was really at risk of, of getting some life-threatening infection. Um, and so I re- really felt like I needed to spend some time um, just caring for her, uh, thinking that maybe this was going to be the time that, uh, that she wouldn't survive. Um, but during that period of time, I actually ended up, doing um, volunteer work for for hospice uh, for hospice um, voluntary hospice where I would spend time visiting patients and um, and just really spending time with them at a incredible time in their lives and it was something that was uh, I was not trying to you know save them or solve any problems but just be with them uh, as they came to that point in their their lives and, and that, approaching their
1: death that seems poignant timing like uh, almost a way to grapple with the fact that you might lose her mm-hmm. uh you seem like a person who goes towards things as opposed to away yeah. from them you know but that's an example isn't it of of going going towards things um i was i was um this is a little out of order but uh of course the people that the two of you lost during that period were real people Mm -hmm. and it so happened that she kind of survived up to the point where there were things that could help Mm -hmm. and many people didn't but I wonder if you could share just as an example of that um the the little piece about Stephen Smith yeah um so
2: I'll read this from from the second to last chapter It's of the also
1: from this period, isn't it, where you um, changed, changed professional directions. Yeah. Um,
2: so Stephen Smith was the only person with AIDS who Caroline and I allowed ourselves to get close to in Washington. He was an activist with ACT UP and ran the D.C. Cannabis Buyers Club out of his small apartment near DuPont Circle. Stephen was the one who recommended Dr. Banks to Caroline. At first, he took the same types of experimental treatments as Caroline, but Stephen had chosen to discontinue, sorry, discontinue the often debilitating treatments about a year earlier. He refused to take any more toxins concocted by pharmaceutical drug companies, but he did accept from me a tin-covered plastic cup of Ganges River water my mother had brought back from her vacation to India. He drank it down enthusiastically, nearly choking on the water. I thought it was disgusting to drink water from a river where people burned their dead, despite the label's claim that it was purified. But Stephen thought the water was holy and brought him more gently toward the state to which he would soon be going.
1: And so he thought that that would help him face death?
2: Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, the irony is that um, the doctor that he had recommended was the doctor that actually ended up saving my wife's life um because he he got her on those experimental treatments that um, that ultimately would would prove to be uh, the drug cocktails that uh, that are now standard. Um, but she ended up getting them uh, I think more than a year before they were even um, approved by the FDA. Uh, so she was one of the lucky people to to be able to survive that Um time where people like uh, like Stephen who who ended up stopping the treatment just uh, you know just barely didn't make it
1: well which you can understand because if it tr- if a treatment is experimental and it's making you feel terrible hmm uh, it's very tempting to say, well, we don't even know if this is working. Right. <laughs> you know i'm I'm more familiar with this from people that go on clinical trials with cancer because I've worked a lot with cancer, but it's yep. it's a similar phenomenon it's a it's a really hard dilemma, yeah um, to to feel you might be making your your quality of life terrible for no real reason, yeah. And it was, I mean,
2: at first it was rough for, for my wife, but um, uh, but again, she she was one of the lucky ones who, who made it through that time. Um, and it was, uh, it, I mean, it was very heartbreaking when we, we lost
1: Stephen. He sounds dynamic. Yeah, he was an amazing <laughs> person. And so at that point, were you working for the government? Um so at that point, I, I uh,
2: right when we lost Stephen was when I, um, when my wife started to recover actually, and, and I was able to go back to work, and, and I ended up um, working for a, a biopharma company um, that uh, was just a small biopharma company, but it led me to a, a you know twenty year career in in the biopharmaceutical industry. Um, and ironically, the company I, I had been working, my last company that I worked for, uh, that I worked for for 10 years, ended up being the same company that um, that gave her two of the three
1: experimental treatments that saved her life. And so you, you gave back there, too, <laughs> <laughs> without knowing it at first, huh? Yeah, right. Let's fast forward to what you're doing now, because we were talking just a bit um, before we were on the air about it, and it's very uh, related to everything that you've gone through uh, with your wife and also not, um, you know, often what people end up doing is become becoming, um, like me, becoming professionals and, uh, you know... Um, End of life related fields broadly. Uh, you've done something really different, which I think would be interesting for listeners to hear about. Um, yeah. So I, when I left my my
2: last company um, in in biopharma, I uh, decided to try my hand at uh, being a social purpose entrepreneur. Um, and what I what I did was I started a business um, that's really looking to uh, develop new. New businesses that will uh, create um, economic opportunity in rural America uh, by um, creating innovative uh, new plant-based products uh, to be plastic alternatives. Uh, so, trying to save our landfills of the and oceans of all the, the plastic waste that uh, that just ends up there, um, and. I think that uh, if we can have that kind of innovation and bring those type of manufacturing jobs to rural America, we might be able to replace the jobs that are being lost, um, the ones that are, you know, in the steel and the coal industries that that really aren't coming back. But mm. maybe through new innovation, we'll have
1: new economic opportunity. And also you developed, uh, this was a particularly interesting f- me because I think my wife would have my first wife would have loved to have one of these uh-huh. a, ca- a cane with a grabber on the bottom.
2: Yeah, we've uh, trademarked a new um, invention that I created a couple of years ago called the Grabber Done, um, and it's actually just a, a cane and a grabber in one. Uh, where my wife can now, when she's walking with her cane, she can also pick things up off the ground um, without that, having to bend that over.
1: Is- that is a remarkably useful thing to be able to do, without carrying around two separate items. <laughs> As I know from watching watching a di- uh, disabled person, you know, for years and years and years, those kinds of things are just remarkably useful. So, if people want to find out about it, reach out to me and I'll figure out how they can get in touch with with the product. So, <laughs> yeah, great, thanks. So. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And again, you can find D.J. Ch- Chang's book, First Mistake, at Amazon. Next week, I'll have Dr. Bradley Nelson. We'll be talking about his book, The Emotion Code, and the Body's Power to Heal Heartbreak. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm.